Power Hour. Coal. Oil. Natural gas. Power Hour, the show where today's top energy experts break down today's top energy issues. No sound bites, no talking points, no nonsense, no BS, no softball questions, no vagueness, just in-depth analysis and ruthless clarity. Here's your host, Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Uh, In the last six months or so, in discussing energy issues on this show, I've been talking a lot about the goal of industrial progress, which is the focus of my organization, the Center for Industrial Progress. I've been arguing that free market intellectuals and advocates in the energy space need to embrace industrial progress as the positive alternative to the green movement. So I've been getting a lot of questions about this, and it's it's a really interesting topic to me, so I decided this show will focus on that issue. We'll talk about industrial progress, the industrial progress movement, and why I think it's the key to liberating industry and revitalizing our economy. Now, since this is really my personal area of expertise uh, above all, instead of being the host this month, I'm going to be the guest. Uh, But don't worry, we've still got a host, and He's much more experienced at radio than I am. My guest host is Jordan Breen, one of my personal favorite radio hosts on the air today. Uh, Jordan is known for his expertise in the world of sports, comments for ESPN.com, and also the leading martial arts website, SureDog.com, which is actually how I met Jordan. Um, I'm into the martial arts as a hobby, Brazilian jiu-jitsu in particular as a hobby of mine, and listening to Jordan and, and befriending him ultimately, I quickly discovered that he's incredibly thoughtful and insightful, not just in the sporting world, but across the spectrum of human knowledge. And most importantly for this show, he asks really, really uh, tough questions, which, of course, we value on this show because no softball questions is one of the basic rules. Uh, So get ready for a fun-filled, content-packed reverse power hour. I think it's interesting first to draw whatever differences we can between the fact that you run a institution called the Center for Industrial Progress, yet the show is called Power Hour. The intro imaging makes very, very good use of energy types and more than anything, your work is seen as being in the energy sector, the energy industry, and being specifically concerned about it. In what ways does industrial progress as a container, as a thought, contain more or more important ideas philosophically about energy and other things? Yeah, I mean, over the past year, I've really been thinking about, I mean, an interest of mine is always, how do we more successfully advocate the right things? And in the case of energy, it's what I call energy liberation, the liberation of the production uh, of energy. Um, And part of how we successfully advocate the right things, and hopefully we'll get to talk more about this later, is by really tying them to what is their value to an individual's life? How does this promote life? And energy by itself is not a value. Energy is a means. It's a means to an end. Energy is the capacity to to do work. And work is a means to an end. Work is a means to life. And on a societal scale, what energy is a means to is it's a means to powering industry. It's a means to feeding the machines that do the work that promote our lives. So in thinking about the value of energy and in promoting the value of energy, I think it's indispensable to see it as a means to a positive and to have a vision of a positive. And I I call that positive, that ideal uh, industrial progress. And so that encompasses energy, but it also encompasses the other fundamental forms of physical production that involve 
taking basically doing doing physical work taking something in nature that's not valuable and transforming it into something that is valuable so mining is a form of industrial progress manufacturing is a form of industrial progress construction is a form of industrial progress infrastructure is a form of industrial progress these are all completely crucial and these are really the purpose of energy and then on top of that these are the core things that are under attack by the green movement and we've talked a lot on this show about the green movement and how it influences energy but the more i i've seen the more i research the more i see that the 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 negative of the green movement extends to all of industrial progress one thing i would also say about industry is i think it's an interesting term we talk about how energy is a means to an end and i think it's even wrong necessarily to see industry as that end after all like the word industry comes from the latin for you know industria it means like passion or zeal it refers to to diligence and doing things so it's the actual capacity to do it and i think that's one of the things that uh if I may compliment, makes the Center for Industrial Progress very, very potent as a name. If you really think about what industria meant in Latin or what industrial means in its root, it suggests not the idea of specifically business or systematic work, but an idea about diligence and passion and, and being able to create efficient work. Yeah, definitely, and there's, there's definitely an issue here. Um, through, I mean, you're, you're bringing up history, and it's important to look at history and philosophy in particular in this uh, context. I mean, Locke talks about the industrious person in a very positive context, and more broadly, there can be a mistake that people make in bifurcating the physical and the spiritual, or matter and spirit, and treating it as okay. Well, this is industrial life, and then this is these are the higher realms, and um, Ayn Rand, who many who listen to the show know, is um, an extreme influence on me philosophically. She, in Atlas Shrugged and in other works, makes uh, an enormous point to stress that that matter and spirit are in unity in these sorts of things, and that working is a noble thing. It involves thought. It involves passion. Uh, it involves material and spiritual products. And there's no there's no disintegration between the two. The two are in harmony. Now, unfortunately, in the culture, there is that separation, and many view work, and particularly industrial work, as something low, and it's easy to attack. And that's in one reason why I'm focused on this issue of industrial progress, because I think this is the aspect of capitalism that is crucial to defend right now, because it is the one most under attack. When well, obviously we'll talk about more advocacy and specifically the kinds of protocol you want to be able to put in place for the Center for Industrial Progress. But I want to ask, obviously, the fact that this is your raison d'être and the fact that we're going to talk about advocacy and and really pushing for industrial progress and what that means to you and what could potentially mean to your institute. I'm curious in why you think it's necessary, not from the perspective of, hey. What can this, how can this change people's minds? What kind of concepts will expose them to? But why is it necessary at all? How have we gotten to any kind of point that you and the like-minded feel industrial progress has been put off the rails? Because at the very least, uh, it would be a fair concession that the marketing and the sensationalization, the sexification, the commodification of the green movement is rich. It's commercial in nature. It even has a color. It's evocative. So how is it that something like the green movement, which by and large refers to a very specific small amount 
of ideas or processes or policies has become vastly more important than an overall idea of industrial well-being. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great set of observations. And I, I want to start um, by, before I get to the green movement, just talk about the political economic situation, because we're a philosophical organization. We're focused on changing people's minds. We're focused on changing people's minds because that's necessary for us to live in the kind of free country that I want to live in, a country of progress, a country where I'm free to pursue my own happiness to the utmost, and others are too. So we have more Steve Jobs and more um, types historically, such as the you know the John D. Rockefellers uh, of the world, and unfortunately, I mean, there's good news and bad news in terms of industrial progress. The good news is is that we have enormous untapped potential in terms of in energy, mining, manufacturing, construction, infrastructure. These sectors are struggling mightily. But they don't have to. The only thing getting in the way is bad policies. And I call I often call this the green gauntlet of anti-development bureaucrats, activists, lawyers, pressure groups, lawsuits, smear campaigns. Um, but none of this is necessary. This is what we need is a set of clear – the government's environmental job is to protect us against pollution and to protect us against endangerment with clear objective laws and then otherwise get out of the way. So the government needs to liberate industry, and if it does liberate industry, amazing, amazing things are possible in the same way that the more liberated sectors of the economy, such as the computer industry, uh, we see amazing, amazing things possible. So this is what we want politically. So the good news is that amazing things are possible. The bad news is those amazing things are constrained to the point where there are many, many people who are jobless who need not be jobless uh, because of the green movement. And that indicates the point that you raised, which is that the green movement is winning. And for those of us who believe in industrial capitalism, industrial freedom, it's really important to take that seriously and really important to examine why. And my job is to write about these issues. And I don't do this job so that I can you know, go to bed every night and say, hey, I said the true thing about this issue. I want to go to bed every night and ultimately in 10 years I want to look back or 20 years I want to look back and say, no, I helped influence changing policy, changing people's minds to change policy so that we live in a better, freer world, including, by the way, a better environment, which industrial progress makes possible. And what we see with the green movement is there's there's all of these trappings of it. So it's it's got very good marketing. It's got it's in the educational system. It's got all of these elements to it, and it can seem like this leviathan. And how do you deal with it? Uh, I often jokingly call it big green because it is this this huge force. But at the core of it, I think what it succeeds at doing is presenting. Um, an unopposed moral ideal that then all of these other things glom onto, are attracted to, and orient their, themselves around. So the ideal is, you know, a society of man living in harmony with nature. Now, this is a very woozy idea because if you look historically, a live in court harmony with nature means to live to 30 or less because nature does not give us a very clean environment or very healthy environment. But there's this ideal. And at the same time, they, they appeal to people's ideals of, say, living in a world with minimal pollution, living in a world with beautiful sights. And by, by constructing a moral viewpoint in which those are dominant, 
they've and, and in, in which they've monopolized those issues and that's really the key they've monopolized concern for the environment they've been able to frame a moral narrative in which you're either an environmentalist you're either green and you care about quote the environment or you're not and you don't care about the environment and everything else is is just like attracted to it like flypaper because they're able to construct that narrative in my view a lot of what the industrial side must do and can do and can do even better is have the skill of reframing that narrative and construct a much more powerful moral ideal that people are drawn to. But what's the grip? If there wasn't some kind of tension, some kind of lack of ease with, with life and the way things are headed, people wouldn't at all be attracted to this. What is it that you think speaks to people about the green movement or the kind of philosophical ideals that – it offers. What is it that makes it particularly more attractive and in turn makes people so reflexively against whatever their favorite green advocate or green scholar or green group happens to be against? What offers that catalyst that allows the discontent to start? Because it's not like forever people have had the idea of, oh, no, let's not you know, disturb the groundwater. This is incredibly new. Yeah, but it's it's interesting because um, it's it's really important to recognize in these issues that there is such a thing as a manufactured problem. Now, I'm not saying that's the total explanation here; it isn't. But human so beings- manufacturing, though, as you know, manufacturing takes materials. What's the raw material? Where's the discontent? Where's people's beef originating from? Well, I mean, there you can manufacture problems simply from people's uh, anxiety in life, their desire to belong. I mean, there, you know, if you read Eric Hoffer, there's lots of things that that movements can work with. But I think um, the more common phenomenon is not a manufacturing from nothing or simply from a, some psychological deficit. It's it's taking a legitimate issue in life and then um, owning that issue and basically monopolizing that issue and taking people's concern with it and saying this is incredibly uh this is incredibly threatened so let's you know let's take the issue you mentioned groundwater so we might as well work with that that's what the the anti-fracking movement is working with now what the environmentalist movement is able to do is they're able to now there's a well there's also the issue that just uh, just as a parenthetical people who don't have I mean, because we are so blessed, in a sense, by our level of industrialization, our level of uh, progress, our level of environmental health, there are all sorts of real-life problems that people face in the rest of the world that people had throughout history that aren't problems today. And therefore, it's very easy for people to make enormous mountains out of molehills because they don't have these other real problems to grapple with. So if you take the issue with groundwater, um, you know, someone will watch a movie like Gasland and they'll see a jar full of some cloudy water and that cloudy water will be attributed falsely to fracking, but whether it's false or not. And this will be just this, this uh, incredible thing to them. But objectively, what does this mean? There's cloudy water somewhere. We're sh- well, surely we've all seen cloudy water. And if you think and put it in context, the quality of water we have is unbelievable. I mean, the fact we can turn on a tap and that clean water comes out, this is something that's virtually historically unprecedented for human beings to have. So what's happening is that that there's an enormous amount of manipulation uh, and effort made to construct a moral narrative 
out of something. And often that moral narrative involves radically taking it out of context and including um, portraying industry, ignoring all the benefits of industry and all the benefits of, say, the energy that comes from fracking, which is one of the most important and, and life-promoting developments of the past 25 years, ignoring all of that, taking that all for granted and saying and def being able to reframe the debate so as to define fracking as it contaminates groundwater. And so there's all sorts of, of rhetorical techniques. But the thing I want to focus on is that their ability to take the moral high ground is at the core of it and that any successful opposition needs to be able to take that high ground away uh, and pull it right out from under them and take a, a still higher ground based on real facts in the full context. How would you characterize the current state of debate philosophy and in general ethos about trying to win hearts and minds for industrial progressives. When you look at contemporaries, people that you give money to to provide content for your think tank or people who you respect, what kinds of inconsistencies or shortcomings do you see in the message specifically? Well, I just want to say I think it's a very difficult thing. I mean, it's a difficult thing to convince people of ideas they don't uh, agree with. And when one side has all of this practice and experience constructing a certain narrative, um, it's it's difficult to get out of that. And I find that with fracking and with Keystone and with other things, the way people look at these issues is very deeply influenced by the environmentalist movement, by, by and I should say, by the idea that there's something inherently wrong with man altering nature, there's something morally tainted, there's something dangerous, and that that idea and that philosophy is really has really been implanted for the past, let's just say, five decades. And so, just about everyone prominent in my field today has grown up with that. And at the same time, there, I have the benefit of coming from a context of philosophy. Now, the really cool thing about philosophy as a field, philosophy is focused on what are the fundamental ideas and beliefs and methods that animate life and that animate people's thought. And it, it's a very good teacher of checking premises and examining why do I believe what I believe? Have I picked up any ideas that I haven't examined? Am I you know, living, to use Socrates' term, an examined life? And I came into the field of energy, not an expert uh, at the beginning, not an expert on energy at all, but I had the benefit of having this ability to think critically and so to look at all the terminology, and we can go into any of this, but green energy, renewable energy, sustainability, I mean, I could name 25 other terms, which are very distorted and which, if you use them uncritically, will orient you toward uh, the environmentalist side. So that's all by way of, I think it's it's difficult we have to keep in context the fact that the anti-industrial side has been has been dominant for long enough that even those on our side are you have usually have their thinking skewed um, by it. So, I mean, do you mind if I use an example just of a controversy side? So I'd rather not talk about like individuals because I think different some individuals do better and worse things. But I think if we look at the way a controversy proceeds, I think it's helpful. I. Who would I be to say, don't use an example? Concrete things are generally good. <laughs> uh, okay, well, hopefully they'll be good uh, in, in this case. So um, let's let's take the issue of, of the Keystone Pipeline, and this actually came up on the last issue of Power Hour. The, so 
I've been writing about this lately. I mean, the, the Keystone Pipeline is a means of getting uh, secure oil from the, the largest source of secure oil in the world, which is the oil sands uh, in Canada. So, and there are many, many reasons uh, to, to favor this and, and to want this oil and to want the level of security that comes along with this particular uh, pipeline. And But I don't want to get into the details of Keystone. What I want to get into the details of is the narrative of how it's framed, because I think this is a microcosm of how every issue is framed. And what, 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 How do they frame it? Well, the, the refrain that I hear over and over by the green side is, do we want to be the kind of country that pursues clean energy, or do we want to be the kind of country that you know sticks with dirty energy? You know, do we want to be long-range and far-sighted, or do we want to be you know naive and short-sighted? Different variants of this. And although there's so much wrong with the content of this, the method is is a really good example of of, of giving people a moral choice and taking the moral high ground. If you're framing the issue as, I mean, what does it mean to give them a moral choice? It means that you're saying there's some fundamentally important issue on li- in life that will affect human life for good or ill. And you, you the individual, have a choice. You can either make it go right or you can make it go wrong. Now, if you set up an issue that way, that is a very powerful setup. And if someone disagrees with that view, they disagree with the policy, they disagree with the setup, the only effective way to oppose it is to give a moral, you know, a moral view of one's own and a superior and more powerful moral view. But what happens is I think one of three alternatives, and this is this is the standard response to any uh, to any of the green things. One is the is what I call the appeasing response. So they'll agree to some degree with the policy and they'll agree with the ideas underlying the policy that oil is dirty and it would be better if we didn't have to have pipelines. But they'll, you know, they might demand a compromise. And this is what business does chronically. They're always, you know, so many businesses, especially when their particular pipeline isn't on the line, they businesses do this chronically. And it's it's awful because as Larger is the but this is a point made by a guy named Art Robinson who runs Access to Energy, which is a really great energy newsletter that used to be run by a guy named Petter Beckman, who I mention on the show uh, all the time. Robinson points out that if you look at what really promotes the green movement, it's business. Greenpeace, Sierra Club, those guys don't have enough money for all this propaganda. But businesses who see some sort of threat to themselves and whose default thing is not to question it or not to fight it, but to appease it, they're the ones. Who are really spreading it. So there, you get one set of people uh, who are appeasing this, and often other industrial businesses will just say, yeah, we shouldn't have that Keystone Pipeline because it's not their particular business uh, on the chopping block. The second, and I think more common among the free market people, is to appease the ideals but oppose the policy prescription. So they'll say, yeah, it would, you know, clean energy would be really nice, but you know we can't afford it right now. The you know the it's or or they'll point to specific facts which are often true, such as well if we don't use the oil, then it's just going to go to China and that'll generate even more greenhouse gas emissions. Now I can understand why why people do this, but I think it's it's a huge huge mistake because what's happening is you're conceding that we should go in this quote anti this clean energy anti Keystone direction, but this particular way of doing it is wrong. Well, what is the other side going to do? They're just going to find another way of doing it. 
but they're still there. You've agreed to their goal, which is what they really need. So that's going to put them in the driver's seat. Now, the third alternative um, is the one that I think I've I've used and, and is valid, but I just think insufficient. And that is opposing the basic philosophy of it and opposing the policy, but not focusing enough on offering a positive alternative. So you look at it and you say, look, this is, you know, you're you're wrong that that it's bad to build pipelines. Pipelines are good. Um, you know, pipelines are okay. And you know, you're you're wrong to you have the government believe that the government should be involved in these energy ways. This particular policy is wrong, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you have all sorts of fallacies on all sorts of different levels. Um, and, you know, Keystone should be allowed. And that's true. But the problem is, think about what a person who listens to that is going to get. He All he's going to hear is, okay, these people say there shouldn't be Keystone. The, and they have, you know, they want to move us in this direction. This guy is opposing it. But then there's a question of what is he in favor of? Is he in favor of the exact Keystone pipeline policy right now? Because, I, I mean, I'm not in favor of a lot of the laws involved with that, including eminent domain. And more broadly, there's nothing really um, inspiring anyone in a positive direction. So you've got this one movement that's crusading with an ideal and saying, look, we're going to make a better world. Even if you blast an iteration of that to shreds, you've only brought the person to zero. So the goal is to, to bring them to a new 100, and that's industrial progress. And industrial progress is the improvement of the human environment through energy and technology. It's viewing environment in a whole new positive way as the way we make our lives better, the way we make our surroundings cleaner, the way we can even enjoy nature better is by producing more energy, by having more industry, by making more progress. And we should have laws that maximize that. And Keystone is an instance of industrial progress. It's us figuring out, it's human beings figuring out how to get oil, this amazingly versatile substance, from a bunch of previously useless tar. And this is one of the best means we have in, uh, of generating energy to this day. And if someone else can figure out a better way using windmills or sun, go for it. But do not get in the way of industrial progress. Do not get in the way of industrial freedom. And I think the more we can frame it positively like that, the more the other side gets exposed to what they are, which is not having a positive vision, but really just interfering with the actions of free people who want to make their lives better. One thing that stands out to me from the outside looking in is speaking to this, the fact that when people talk about the benefits of industrial progress or why something like Keystone would be valuable, I feel like things are almost too reified. There's this sense of it helps business or it helps the economy or these larger abstract ideas about well-being in efficiently run countries and states and so forth. But what ultimately people miss, and I think one of the things that the environmental side are extraordinarily good at both popularizing, promoting, and empowering people with is that it takes on a more individual kind of role. I mean, one of the ideas that is so richly present when you see a uh, commercial for green-related anything or some kind of initiative is, you know, you see someone putting solar panels on a lean-to in sub-Saharan Africa and they're able to promote a sense of individual community where it's 20 people coming together for a greater good. Or you watch some kind of commercial for perhaps a relatively 
liberal pro-green think tank or something like that. And they have a very brilliant sense at, because of the connection to nature, being able to connect people to it intimately. There is an easier way to make a television viewer or a bystander on the street who's picking up a pamphlet feel connected to a bird sitting on a rock in a stream than having them witness I don't know, an oil refinery, and then try to imagine all the byproducts and things that come out of it that can benefit their lives. It seems as though one of the major, major benefits that goes hugely unexamined by opponents of the green opposition is that they're able, or excuse me, opponents of of the green movement, is that this opposition is able to individually empower people by making them feel like not only are they a part of nature, but that there's this reflexive relationship between their philosophy and what this person's getting out of it. Whereas we talk about industrial progress. You and I both know that you know, from the soles of our shoes up to whatever hair product we might use that we have petroleum to thank, but this is not even in the slightest the way – that oil or any other beneficial substance has been positioned by those concerned with industrial progress. What is there to say for connecting the individual outcomes that someone might experience to this? Because it, to me, seems like the thing that's most grossly negligent about the promotion of strong industry and property rights and all of these things and just incompatible and, and falling so short of where the green movement has smashing success. Yeah, there, there, there's a lot to that. And I'm glad, I'm glad you raised it because I, I discussed the issue of, of um, what I think is a better, more positive approach in connection with a particular controversy that's been framed a particular way by the green movement. Um, But that's really not where most of the time needs to be spent. I mean, it's very important to spend time and to have the most powerful arguments there, but a lot of time needs to be spent in um, not in combat, but in making, in connecting industrial progress um, to individuals' lives. And not even necessarily just in terms of industrial progress, but just um, illustrating in all kinds of ways what industrial life is, what it means, how wonderful it is, and all always connecting it to the values and the aspirations of the individual. So um, anyone who hasn't read this yet, go to industrialprogress.net, enter in your email address, and if you'll subscribe to the CIP Insider, that Center for Industrial Progress Insider Newsletter. I wrote an article. The first, the first newsletter you get is called The Power of Aspirational Advocacy. And this is all about the idea of connecting you know, political views and philosophical views to people's deepest values uh, and aspirations. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot, I mean, so much work has gone into the other side um, because it's it's taken this moral high ground. Many people have used their marketing skills and just their general sensibilities uh, to promote it well. And on the industrial side, there has been very little of a moral high ground and therefore very little work uh, has been done. So it's it's a big job, but for our part at, at Center for Industrial Progress, this is an ongoing thing of figuring out um, and then executing what are the best ways to show people how amazing industrial life is and how meaningful it is to have uh, an interaction, to have you know a relationship with the rest of nature, so to speak, where you take pride in our in our um, ability to develop nature to meet human needs, where you, you're proud of the fact that we don't have to worry about having Jardia 
in water, where we're going to have manure all over the streets, where we have indoor plumbing, where all of these things are viewed as wonderful achievements. They're achievements made by individuals or groups of individuals, and they're achievements that matter to every single individual to the degree that their uh, achievements. So f- for example, um, book I'm working on, uh, The Story of Energy, is a lot about the heroes who brought us from a world in which we, ha- we could do very little work to a world in which machines do most of our work for us. And that's something that anytime you have a great moment with your girlfriend, you know, anytime you have a great family movement, a great Thanksgiving, just even that one category of life, think about how much of that is made possible by the fact that we have figured out how to get nature and machines to do so much of our work for us so we don't have to be doing backbreaking labor all day. That has to be the, the, the mode in which we're approaching things. And as a success story, of this, I mean, we've at Center for Industrial Progress. I think we've had um, some successes so far, although there's so much to build on and, and to do in the future. But the number one success story of this, which I'm I'm really surprised I never hear from anyone, is Atlas Shrugged, which hopefully most people who are listening to this have read. If you, if you haven't read it for sure, but Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand is the ultimate piece of aspirational advocacy. I mean, if if you told someone straight, I've got a book that makes productive individuals, like um, people who make steel, people who run railroads, I make them into heroes. And when you read this book, you are going to care deeply about someone who makes steel and someone who, who, who runs a railroad. And you are going to have as deep contempt as you could ever imagine for so-called human, humanitarians. Most people think this is this is impossible. The world doesn't work that way. People don't care about businessmen. People don't hate humanitarians. And yet this is a book that sold 7 million copies. And at least when people read it, even people I know who hate the book admit that when they read it, it reorients them so that they see, oh, my God, the people who the, – the atlases upon whom the world depends, these guys are amazing. What they do is amazing. Their act of transforming you know, our environment from – you know less to more from from worse to better what these people do uh is incredible so it's been and that's so so many businessmen just from that one book have gotten the confidence um to as ayn rand said in a different book face a lifetime just from that one book that portrayed business as this thing of incredible power and importance and sanctity to the individual just because of that it influenced so many people. So I think we should really learn from that example and know that it has nothing to do at all. We're not disadvantaged at all in the ideas department. In terms of being pro-industrial, we are heavily advantaged because what we stand for is absolutely amazing. And the other side, I mean, think about what the other side, the other side tries to make people feel proud of their lives based on how they sort their garbage. That's what we're up against. I mean, or concocting, you know, scam after scam after scam or focusing on, you know, even focusing on climate, even if there was significantly problematic global warming, the number one thing you would have to say about climate is that climate related deaths, thanks overwhelmingly to coal, have dramatically gone down over the past hundred years. I mean, we have everything to be inspired by. Um, We have a small but but soon to be growing industrial heroes section on our site. There is. I mean, to be on the industrial side is like having this like secret 
infinite buffet of tasty morsels to show the world and all that they knew you know know as food is basically dog food so i consider it as you know be having a tremendous potential advantage it's just something that we and others need to actualize how do you make people respect or even care that they have these kind of advantages it's easy for us to go hey look everything around us so much energy thanks oil and all of the other ancillary things that help make up our power group but at the same well, time but, that's not, that's- but at the same time as that's happening even the poorest people really you know people that are considered impoverished by US government standards i think something like 98% of people considered in poverty by the United States government have a car and air conditioning how on earth can you make people appreciate you know sort of what what technology can offer when these kind of standards that we expect i mean we expect a car People are supposed to have cars, but we certainly don't think that the poor have cars. And yet in a world where the objective standards that we set for being poor, being impoverished, still allow you to have this much stuff, how do we get to a point where you can connect, hey, look, this substance turns into an iPod and make it something that actually resonates with that spiritual component that you discussed earlier and makes them feel like they're being a part of the world and embedded in it in the way that the green movement's so good and, and being able to make people have the sense that they're performing a duty that integrates them in and binds them with the world or the environment or some kind of abstract notion of our living area. Well, I think in terms of, I mean, in terms of living standard, leaving aside the kind of uh, catastrophe fear that the catastrophic global warming people use, that that's not, all of the green movement by any means, but you could use the wealth argument either way. I mean, why should it's just an argument for apathy in a certain sense? I mean, why should you know? Why should you know? People are well off. Why should they they care so much? But it's it's precisely because it's 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 very much not just hey, I you know, iPods uh, have a bunch of oil in them, although they don't have as much oil as they used to because they're mostly you know, largely glass now. But whatever, you know, an MP3 player is made of oil. Um, you know, the keyboard I'm looking at right now is made of oil. That is not going to cut it. I mean, that I I do that occasionally as part of my speeches, and I used to, I used to do it more. Um, but that's, for instance, not at all what happens in Atlas Shrugged. It's the, it always has to be on both sides of the equation, both producer and consumer, the connection to the individual's life, and as a as and that includes just connecting to individuals aspirations about the world so this is this is the so you have heroes in a culture and they're not just heroes because without them we'd all none of us would have cars and that you know poverty line would be even lower they're heroes because they do same like someone like Steve Jobs it's it's heroes because they do something really good so it's all about understanding and 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 framing what people do in their lives is good and changing when they look at the world what is good and what isn't and how they think of that and a big part of that is understanding how it works where it comes from but if it's just on the level of of you know a bunch of things are made of oil that's not going to work any more than when people say oh you know 50,000 jobs will be destroyed by this particular moratorium and that that's all way too abstract way too disconnected uh, as as opposed to the green movement which we've already conceded is enormously popular, it seems a bit facile to act as though that's not an appropriate tactic when that kind of basic connection to someone, hey, you get this out of this other thing, is precisely 
what the Green Which, Movement. And so yet, I, don't, I don't quite understand what example you're using with the Green Movement. The Green Movement is able to connect your sorting your recycling and putting papers and plastics where they go into a gold star and brownie point system. So if people are able to feel good about that, in which they, they clearly do and militantly so, it seems a bit ridiculous to act as though that same kind of feeling, that same kind of, oh, wow, this comes from this, that sort of feeling can't or, or shouldn't be attempted to be replicated by any kind no, of no, industrial no, no, progress. Sure. I, I, I don't want to uh... – we might have miscommunicated a bit, but let me let me talk a little about the recycling example. So my my point about the oil thing is not that you shouldn't know these things are made of oil, but there's it's my, my point is knows. I think I think that for an enormous amount of lay people who might be either indifferent or predisposed to take a knee jerk reaction along the lines of business, bunch of guys in suits with cufflinks taking my money, these kinds of people clearly. There is something that is immediate and impactful about that kind of built-in reward system of the green movement, that it makes it feel like the cockles of your heart are being warmed by knowing where your plastics go. And I think it goes beyond with the industrial progressive side because I think there's an enormous appetite for people to even, – even the most basic and perfunctory understanding could foster something interesting. I mean you talk – about how important it is at times when you're able to do a speech and show off to people how many things in room X, for instance, come from a petroleum product. But I think there's an enormous amount of people that have absolutely zero connection to this idea and for whom I think it would be enormously impactful because I think we've already seen that, it, like to me, I don't know what it's a testament to, but I find it incredible that for so many people, the often expensive payoff for the Green Movement is feeling good inside. That it is a gold star brownie point system or a tax deduction, something like that. Now, some people, I'm sure, get lots of specific end products that work very well or make their lives better from this. And yet, for so many who are advocates, ultimately, they're in it for some kind of emotional or spiritual payoff. I, I guess, ultimately, to distill the point... How do you convince the most average of people with the most unconcerned disposition, someone who ultimately is not going to care about the underpinning philosophy of efficient work, how do you connect the thought of industrial progress and that warm feeling in their tummy when all the plastic gets melted and recycled? <laughs> uh, all right. that's I, I like that question. Um, Let's talk about the issue of feeling good inside first, and then I want to work back to the issue of recycling. Um, I was thinking to myself about a month ago. Just, I like it's helpful sometimes to think about ideas in terms of as as products. I mean, they're a type of product; they're an intellectual product. So, what does the green movement really sell? And on, I, I think you can say that it really sells two things, and they're related. One is morality. And two is phony self-esteem. So they sell you a way of doing the right thing. And every human being has a basic need to know whether he's doing the right thing or not. I mean, he has to act. He knows on some level that actions have consequences. So there's this always this underlying question of, am I acting in the right way or the wrong way? And you know, when 
in a, in a culture that in many ways lacks morality and particularly for a lot of the people on the left who lack religion, which in, in my view is not the proper source of morality but is nevertheless um, amorality, particularly for the people on the left who lack that, they have no – they have very little direction, very little purpose often. They don't in, – in that realm, they often feel spiritually empty. What is my purpose in life? And what environmentalism says is, well, there's no God. But what there is is there's a nature, and we live in this interconnected ecosystem, and you're a part of it, and you're, inter and, and you're impacted by it, and it, it impacts you, and really you depend on it, and you depend on its, its resources, and you need it. And to be good means to be responsible and really to, to minimize your impact on this ecosystem because otherwise you're going to really disrupt it and mess things up. And to be bad means to put a big footprint on it and be selfish and do all of these bad things because that's going to cause all sorts of chaos. And, of course, don't we all know that it's bad to be selfish? Anyway, so they have this whole new quasi-religious or just straight religious morality, and then there are all of these instances of how to follow it. And what that does is that a person feels good when they follow it. What they what what they do when I was criticizing it earlier is criticizing it not from the perspective of it's not effective, but from the perspective of how trivial it is if you understand the causality of what recycling, what government forced recycling, I should say, does, which is just you know destroys economic value most of the time by wasting a lot of energy um, where it would otherwise be better used. But in terms of how people see recycling, it's a different thing. They see recycling as part of this, this moral metaphysics that I was mentioning of the nature of the ecosystem, the interconnectedness. And the way they have it is what we learn in school is basically that, you know, we as human beings are creating all this trash. The earth, and, you know, when we as people are piling up and our trash is piling up and we're ruining everything, you know, we're messing up the globe, we're messing up our environment ultimately, and what we need to do is, you know, we need to use less, reuse things, and quote recycle. And we're never told what recycling means, or that it involves energy, or the and it's this kind of magical thing, which is consistent with the whole religious bent. And so it it becomes a real part of their religion that I am doing my part, I am doing the right thing by recycling this, and it, it becomes part of their self esteem uh, and part of their morality. Now, what I'm advocating on our side is not some sort of uh, phony equivalent of recycling. Uh, but what I am advocating is really believing in the ethic of industry, the ethic of an industrial society, and really taking pride in say, well, I mean, even people will think this is a joke, but I, I enjoy sometimes, I pause and enjoy throwing away trash. And in lectures, I'll sometimes call it guilt-free garbage, and people think I'm joking. But I think it's, I, I reflect on, how amazing is it that when I have waste in my midst, I don't have to live with it like most people did throughout history. It can be put in a safe place that's not going to make me sick and that, in fact, is not going to pile up in some bizarre way and swamp the earth in trash. So you just the, the whole issue is you need a new industrial environmental philosophy, and the existing one is very entrenched, and thus they can take – very wrong and bizarre things and make them into moral issues with brownie points and gold stars and stuff like that. Uh, but the way to get around that, I think, ultimately is 
is to, to know that that's there and to know that it's wrong, but really to see it as a replacement operation, to see it as how can I how can I show people how amazing industrial life is, how amazing it is to change our environment, how changing our environment improves it. Our environment isn't something we want to leave, you know, let be because that means that means a worse standard of living. It's something we want to change, and that that change for the better, and that that industrial project is. Uh, is part of what it means to be uh, live a good life, part of what it means to be in a good society, and part of what we should aspire to. So aspirational adv- advocacy for industrial progress means that we aspire to a society in which you know there are flying cars and expanded medicine and energy growth and a world in which you don't have 1.5 billion people with electricity and everyone has his own factor. What of course we don't know what it's going to look like concretely, but it's it's something where where that's where our excitement is focused, not on you know sorting paper and plastic into different bins. Why do you think a future that looks like the Jetsons doesn't excite people? Um, that's a really good question. I mean, first, I must, of all, I must really... confess. I mean, it, it seems it seems thrilling to me if someone told me that any measure of philosophical change could engender a world quite like the Jetsons. I'd be hip to hear it. So how do we get – I mean, like, why don't spacely sprockets resonate with people? Well, I think it's I – think, I think you kind of answered it. I mean there's an issue of, of, of seeing, seeing the cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So for instance – and but, but this is part of what, what it's a movement should be doing. So part of being aspirational is you offer a I think, positive I think actually, if anything, of the though, ideal. That that only should should bolster what I said though, because the vision offered. I mean, I mean, I being glib using the Jetsons thing, but you mentioned like what the future could look like. Uh, I think the idea of a flying car is awesome, and especially cute ones of that ilk. If anything, images like this should orient people more powerfully. I mean, when you look at, I, I think it's. I, I should say this. Why is it that there's a huge aspirational connection to science fiction and none to industry? Why does someone look at Minority Report and go, oh, my God, I want a computer that floats and I type in the sky and I can do things like virtual reality? What? And yet there's no interest in whatever industrial processes could orient us toward a future where this is even remotely possible. What gives? Where's the disconnect? Well, I think, but I think, I think it's this, it's the same thing. The whole focus on industry is essentially negative. So it's, if you look at something like fracking, I mean, fracking is a means to the world of the Jetsons in a very real sense. I mean, it, it, fracking is, we'll talk about fracking in full on another show, but this is a technology that is, you know, op- will open up almost certainly Saudi Arabia's worth of energy, probably many, many Saudi Arabia's worth of energy when, you know, when all is said and done. This is this is just a staggering thing. So in terms of what can be done with that energy, it's staggering. But the whole focus of the culture and even of most of the pro-freedom energy side is not a an aspirational focus. And thus, they don't even think of it in those terms. What they focus on is, is fighting off the current threats. And of course, you do have to fight off the current threats, but there's not that view of, of the positive. And I, I remember the day that I decided um, to call 
this organization, the Center for Industrial Progress. And I was thinking of like, should it be Center for Industrialization? What should it be? And I thought, no, what it needs to be, what we need to be focused on is it needs to be something forward-looking where we're excited about the future. Because if you're not excited about the future and if, you, if you're not really looking at something as, as a necessary and good and, and just great improvement, then it doesn't really induce action. And because of the way things are framed right now by the industrials, by most of the people on the industrial side, it's very passive. It's like, well, if you do this policy, we won't lose this many jobs. But there's no sense of, wow, if we really liberated manufacturing, maybe as I indicated before, one person, it could be like one person per factory and you could just explode industrial production. And there are it's not of course I, I should say we can't know exactly what it would look like but the lack of that aspirational quality is certainly has to do with just the negative moral evaluation or just the the um amoral evaluation of industry because if you look on the green side you've got all of these scenarios of what a green economy is going to look like and those things are certainly a lot less plausible than the jetsons so it's it's definitely again an issue of of the right philosophical orientation and our goal at Center for Industrial Progress is to is to really try to infect people with that in a positive way and to, to model it, to give some examples, but then for other people to do it and for people in effect to be competing to find ways to do it better and better and better because there's so much upside here and the other side has been spending so much time perfecting their narrative. We've got better content. We've got a better end game, um, but you know, I, I, I'm – looking forward to the day when uh, when I see something from another think tank and I say, wow, those guys do aspirational advocacy better than my last article. One of the rich ironies I find in the phrase aspirational advocacy, although I do think it's a strong one, is the fact that aspirational is most normally associated with advertising, more specifically television advertising. And if you talk about aspirational TV, People debate whether or not it's the truest jump-off point, but if you were to identify one show more than any other that had a profound effect on aspirational living, it was Dallas, a show about a wealthy Texas oil family that happened to, more so than any other show of the time, portray well-to-do businessmen as terrible, greedy, insidious people. Maybe at the end of the day, it was J.R. Ewing that did you guys in. Good thing you got shot, I guess. But to the end of aspirational as an idea, Alex, I'm curious, do you think that it's the most appropriate word? Because when you talk about aspirational television or aspirational advertising or the way in which it gets used, the defining characteristic is that the exposure audience is not going to be able to attain whatever they're seeing, but thinks of it as a reasonable possibility for the future. Those are the two ingredients that make an aspirational product, whether or not someone's watching Beverly Hills 90210 and desperately wants whatever terrible shirt Ian Zaring's wearing, or whether or not they're looking at industrial progress and thinking what might come. Do you think that the vision that you offer or can offer or whatever ideas are present about industrial progress are actually ideas that people feel close enough to to feel like they can aspire toward them. Because when it comes to aspiration, it seems like there's a radicalized model of it. One, I mentioned like the minority port and Jetsons thing. There's a fascination with the extreme and the extravagant. This is why in the 1940s and 50s, we had so many things telling people flying cars in the year 2000 and so forth. But 
on the other side of the spectrum and more directly to advertisers, what people are going to spend money on, what's going to change people's minds as opposed to just making them hope and wish is that feeling that maybe this is just X amount of dollars away or X amount of years away. That's the defining characteristic of that kind of aspirational product. So insofar as your advocacy is aspirational, is what's being offered by your thought, what you think the Center for Industrial Progress might be able to do, is it something that is close enough to people that they feel that they can actually aspire toward it? Because that is the defining characteristic. Is this something that people feel like is realistic and attainable? Because we're talking, I want to say on a different level, that sounds profoundly terrible and pretentious. But the fact is, one of the really, really uh, dismaying parts about how bad science gets around or uh, how things like climate change get so out of control in people's mind and turn into global warming catastrophes is the fact that lay people are taking very, very delicate ideas and making broad, sweeping generalizations about them. But people crave that. People want an easy distillation. Is a solution for industrial progress one that can actually resound with an average person who wants to spend less than a fifth of their paycheck on energy? Well, I mean, it, it, it's an interesting issue, um, aspirational advocacy. I mean, first of all, any time we're dealing with terminology, I'm always open to, to better terminology. But I'll tell you why I like, I like this uh, for now and why I think it's, it's got a fundamental accuracy to it. Because there's the there, – and it's aspirational on two levels. One is, is the, the societal aspiration. So that this, this should – saying this should be um, – an aspiration. And I think it's important that you have a positive ideal um, and that as part of that, that you that in terms of policy, you have solution oriented things that are seen as means toward that idea. But there's also an issue of this. This sort of gets to the advertising issue of, of an individual's uh, aspirations. And I, I find that interesting because what let's see, what are we talking about when we're talking about the individual's aspirations it, it it's getting toward the issue of what are his values what does he see as right and wrong and but even beyond that to really be desired from life what does he want from life and we we're talking about the recycling issue and how the green movement is is has a lot of ability at tapping into that and tapping into people's desire to be a good person and make to make something of themselves, make the world a better place. And they're good at, at doing that. And I think any aspirational advocacy is not an idea unique to industrial progress. I think it's, it's, it's unique to any, not unique, but it's, it applies to every form of advocacy. That is, you need to have a, some positive ideal. And the person really needs to feel like that ideal and the policies connected to it and then the issues that come up, that those are those are connected to him as an individual, that they really impact his life. And part of it is he can see concretely how they affect his life. And there's a lot of stuff I'll, I'll say in the future just about how I think one can do that in terms of communication. But also that what kind of person he is is reflected by the kinds of stands he takes on these issues. And if you look at just people, how interested and in, invested people are in politics, I think there's a huge aspirational uh, quality uh, to that. So it's, it's definitely something that 
uh, I'm really interested in continuing to hear different views on and learning for myself because we definitely, there's so much progress to be made both in my field and in other fields. But I'm quite sure that this is this is a direction that really needs to be mined. And when we see, if if you believe that your position is right, if we believe our position is right on industrial issues, but more broadly on um, issues of capitalism, and the other side is successfully taking the high ground and more successfully appealing to people's aspirations, that is a losing formula. And that has to be fixable. There, I don't see any logic to the idea that the wrong side is inherently going to be more appealing. Uh, I think, if anything, that you would expect the opposite. Now, historically, we don't have time to get into it, but there are a lot of reasons in the history of philosophy why people are more inclined toward the other views. But there's nothing inherent in human nature, and I think we're proof of it, You know, because I... I am inspired by an oil rig and not by a recycling bin. When you say this should be an aspiration, is that to suggest that, do you think that people want the future of industrial progress the way you imagine it and just don't conceive of the same ends or maybe to your mind don't conceive of the right ends? Ultimately, do you think that while differences exist in how to get there, whether it's green or industrial products, whatever. Do you think that ultimately there's a generalizable idea about what people want America or the world to look like with respect to how we live as a world? Or do you think there, do you, I guess, I guess this is a better question. Do you think that there's a battle for you in winning hearts and minds and showing people that this is something that could be successful to make a more productive and efficiently running world where people live in luxury and, and relative liberty and ease or do you suspect that people want a drastically different outcome and that no amount of changing the instruments will ever work because you discussed the idea of the green movement trying to create a world in which there's very little of man harnessing nature and we simply nature kind of exists and man plays out around it as opposed to vice versa do you think that maybe inside somehow people kind of want the same things but can't realize or relate it in the same kind of methods of production or methods and distribution of labor and resources? Yeah, this is a really huge question that applies to everything. And it's one of my favorite questions, actually. And I think it's interesting because because there are definitely people who want what I would say the exact opposite of what I do. But with this proviso, they can't really say that to themselves if things are spelled out very, very clearly. So my view of, of a society with um, industrial progress, industrial freedom, which includes proper laws against, as I said, pollution and endangerment, I think if one presents a view, and, and certainly if one could fast forward to a hypothetical future where these policies and, and ideals were actualized, so there couldn't be any smearing about, oh, you just want to pollute the world, or oh, you just favor this technology, where all that was out the window, and we really had you know, real competition, amazing innovation, declining pollution, better everything, which I think is possible with the right policies. No one on any significant scale can look at that and say, you know, I'm against that. What, but what happens is that, is that the 
two things. It's both the way things are framed and the way things are executed. So the way things are framed right now, part of what's been a problem on our side is that we've let the other side monopolize the issue of environment, whereas we should own issue the issue of environment. Industrialization is what made our environment livable, and there's there's much, much to say about that. But every environmental issue that comes up when I'm on a campus or debating, I own that issue, um, and it, it works. I mean, people have nothing to say because it's true. I, so if anyone is concerned about you know groundwater or whatever, if you put that in context, it's – yeah, fra- it, um, you need to have laws you know, protecting water and actually – Fracking is not really an issue with groundwater, but other kinds of drilling can be, and certainly Mother Nature contaminates groundwater. But the broader context is fracking is an amazing means of helping make a better environment, you know, a cleaner environment. No one can oppose that. But when the issue is framed incorrectly, and the wrong side always has an incentive to frame it incorrectly, when they do that, then you're choosing, well, do I want – like, yeah, it's kind of necessary, but environmentally – economically necessary, but environmentally bad – or this is environmentally necessary but economically bad, which side do I take? So you've got these false alternatives. Then it becomes possible for one or the other or both to embrace very, very bad positions, but that contradict some of the good elements of them. Whereas the more you can consistently present a clean positive where you own all the right issues and deal with them in all the right way, it becomes very, very hard uh, to oppose. Now, the other issue that comes up is that policy confuses things. So what we have, we don't have, so I'm in favor of laissez-faire capitalism. We don't have anything near that, and we don't have anything very near socialism. We've got a mixed economy, a mixture of capitalism and socialism. So whenever anything goes wrong, there's always a question of, well, was it the freedom or the controls? And that's true in pollution too. If you see a pollution problem, is is it, well, you know, the government, the EPA isn't strong enough, or is it we need a totally different framework um, in which there's actually a lot less government but would actually lessen pollution. Those kinds of things require people to parse things out, and those also uh, can split people. But with in the same way that by presenting a consistent ideal that takes all the right issues and takes the right stance on them and takes a positive stance on them, so the right side has to be very clear at explaining how – it's how it works, like the workings of an industrial economy, the workings and, and the interrelationships. And the clearer you are at that, the clearer you are at telling stories about that, how it works, the less ambiguity uh, there is. So I think the more we put forward positively, um, the better, which is why so much of when I, you know, when I plan what are we going to do the next five years, so much of it is creating positive foundational material, whether it's offering the world a new energy plan or and but or offering you know policies to address all these issues and offering explanations of all the issues that confuse people so that in the end they can see wow there's this integrated positive uh, amazing thing and there's no reason not to want it now it's uh, naive to think that you can get everyone to agree but I think we can certainly get way more people on board than we have right now and and every person we get you know we're we're going to be that much freer and that much better off. People see this issue, any kind of issue about industry or environment or whatever. First of all, let's say that industry and environment are not kind of binary opposites that are in direct conflict with one another at all, which is one of the points of this. But people see it as a radicalized partisan issue. It's some kind of generalized right wing that 
drinks oil and kills babies and some kind of left wing that loves babies and and eats arugula. So do you sense that in reality that you're going to have stern opposition from traditionally seen as more right wing outlets? I mean, when you look at other opposition outside of the quote unquote green movement or the green gauntlet of bureaucratic establishment that makes it so difficult for any kind of industry to go forward. Do you sense that there will be opposition of a different kind of variety? Because obviously uh, so much of this has been built around the idea of you know, environmental policy and environmental advocacy infringing upon what you see as you know, property rights and the ability to properly go forward and, and make industry as we see fit. But do you sense that there are and will be future opponents crawling out of different woodworks of a different color? What exactly, like, what, what would you suspect would be the prime examples? I don't, I'm not necessarily saying that there are any prime examples. I'm, I'm, and, and who better to ask specifically than you, not just because you're the interview subject, yeah. but because if you're going to perceive criticism or misgivings about your ideas, you'd be the best to ask. So when you look at different kinds of people, different kinds of philosophies about economies or state building or god knows what do you think that you're seeing and talking to people that could be opposed for reasons entirely different similar unrelated to the green movement are there other opponents out there or uh, is this yeah yeah i think there are although i think the the thing i've seen more that excites me is that I think there are more, there are many unexpected alliances that, that come up. So one, and actually you have the case, a case where you have both is with the labor movement because you've got a real sense that they have that someone is doing something wrong to us vis-a-vis uh, a man, American manufacturing. And unfortunately they conceptualize that as well, international competition is inherently going to destroy American manufacturing, so, which, is, which is incorrect. But if you can show them, look, these policies, if we got rid of the, at policy X, Y, and Z and replaced with policy A, B, and C, you know, manufacturing would dramatically improve. That can be a compelling thing. Now, at the same time, um, the labor movement has been a major anti-industrial force. The Wagner Act. National Labor Relations Act uh, has certainly held back most prominently the auto industry, but in general, it's on this premise of industry exists to give people jobs, which is wrong. No, uh, jobs are an outgrowth of the need for productive people to help a given business in its productive enterprise. But no one is owed a job, and properly, jobs should be, um, you know, new jobs come into existence all the time, and and no longer useful ones go out of existence. So you have – it's a more primitive Marxist uh, view of jobs that is anti-industrial progress that isn't, isn't specifically green. But I think, I think in general, one of the things that as I, I've gone around and talked to people from left, right, center, etc., and I find, it, I find it heartening that when I, when I make clear what I'm for and when I make clear that what I'm against with the green movement – has nothing to do with anti-pollution. It's that they combine anti-pollution and anti-development, and I'm against the anti-development part, and I am myself anti-pollution, and I am for industry, which has, you know, by historical standards, virtually eradicated pollution. It's very hard for just your norm, even your normal New York Times reader, to have much to oppose in that. So I think there's just there's a real. You, you mentioned the way and the the 
you know, the anti-baby oil drinker, the fact that it's allowed to get to that point is a real problem. But if you can position yourself as above that and embracing what people will see as the best of both worlds, although I wouldn't consider green really anti-pollution at all in the scheme of things. But in any case, there's a real power in doing that. And I think in in being nonpartisan about it, so be, really just laying the cards on the table, look, I care about my life. I want individuals to be able to flourish. This is what we can observe in history. This is what we know about human life. These policies lead to this. These policies lead to that. I'm not an advocate of oil. I'm not an advocate of coal. I'm an advocate of the best energy that human beings can discover at any given time to promote their lives. And the, the more that's done, I think, in an objective way, the more that people who have been forced to choose between two bad alternatives will say, whoa, this is this is interesting. Like, I, you know, I like you. Now, of course, there's not a third party. We don't have an industrial party, and I doubt I would call it that. But it's I think it's I, people. People are looking for something different. They they have this sense that the alternatives they're fed aren't quite right, and so in their own heads, they come up with, "Well, I'm sort of like this on this. I'm liberal on this. I'm conservative on that." But I think if if, if it's framed the right way, they could say, "Yeah, you know, I'm I'm really for industrial progress. I'm really for uh, industrial freedom unequivocally because I understand that it's not opposed to the environment. It, it in fact, it's the large scale improvement." Uh, of the environment. So I'm, I'm really excited to see what's possible with the right framing, with the right philosophy, um, and with a, with a positive vision and a positive ideal. You talked about the idea of not being particularly hung up on oil, coal, whatever. Do you sense that there's any interesting technologies, any interesting advances in energy that Maybe people would be surprised to hear you advocate that also at the same time are being put in the same position as something like the Keystone XL pipeline or like fracking or anything like that. Because one of the things that you always come back to in your writing is the idea of things at the speed of thought. As fast as you can actualize a great industrial idea, you could have made it happen in the 19th century. And this obviously with bureaucracy and red tape isn't something we enjoy now. And what is most obvious is that Although there are perhaps more projects that get the kibosh under the umbrella of fossil fuels or what have you, it, 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 it is an offender of, of all cases. I mean, when you look at what you call the green gauntlet and the ability for bureaucracy to effectively stop good, productive, and progressive ideas in their tracks, are there any technologies out there that you think are adversely impacted right now or things that, pardon the pun, could be in the pipeline that – are less obvious than something like Keystone XL or something like that, where it, it kind of shows off that this isn't an issue about oil and coal or fossil fuels or the petroleum industry getting its, its knuckles wrapped, but rather this is anti-development because even if we could do it with the sun, the wind, the rain, it's not going to get done anyhow. I mean, are there examples like that or do you think that there are some kinds of uh, empirical data that can show that this this idea, this green gauntlet is something that not only hurts uh, maybe what they're intending to stop oil and gas projects, but also ends up hurting energy on the whole, whether or not it's a traditionally clean, so to speak, energy source. You know, putting it in terms of like intend, I mean, if someone is really thinking in terms of, well, I intend to hurt oil and gas, the only, the only, the only even coherent idea of that is the 
the catastrophic uh, global warming view. And I think that that raises the issue of, of nuclear. Now, environmentalists are more probably anti-nuclear than anything else, although there are some who are who are less anti-nuclear. And I think there that would be the number one because of something like solar and wind, and we've talked about it on this program before, but the, the upside of with anything remote that I've seen remotely is just not that good because because you're just dealing with um, you know a pretty diluted source that doesn't come in reliably. So there's a bunch of problems to solve, but it's not clear that there's an upside. Whereas when the more dense the technology you're dealing with, so nuclear having the highest concentration of energy per unit of volume and mass, that you can see, wow, there's so much you're starting with such a potential because you're dealing with so much energy in such a small space getting cheap plentiful reliable energy should be easy or at least i can see how it would be easy and maybe way easier that's that would be the most promising and nuclear is a is a broad term people often equate it with just you know one type of reactor but there's proposals for thorium reactors and different kinds of uranium based reactors and some recycling fuel and some not and we're, what I would say about that is it's just it's at such an it's it got it's gotten slowed down so much we really have no idea and that sometimes I like to fantasize that wow this I, I could sort of make up a scenario or I could see one of these things becoming way more productive than the others but the truth is we don't know positively or negatively we know that we could get way more cheap power from nuclear than we otherwise do because we we get a certain amount of cheap power from nuclear uh, already. But that, that's really the area that I think, you know, the chips are down on the issue of nuclear. Because if you study the safety question, um, one of the great benefits of nuclear is it's the safest form of energy conversion ever devised. If you have to choose between living next to a nuclear power plant and living next to a street, if you want to live, you should choose living next to a nuclear power plant. So if – and not that everyone should know this and there's lots of hysteria associated with it, but in terms of real scholars and – into people are devoting their lives to this stuff and pretending nuclear is unsafe. I mean, that really reveals that what they're hostile to is this issue of the transformation of nature. They're, they, they're, the fact that we're using fission, this fissioning process to split atoms at this very low level and generate all of this power from nature, they regard it as unnatural and inherently immoral and inherently beyond man's power to rationally uh, control. So I, I regard nuclear as the most cut and dried issue for separating, um, at least among intellectuals, are you for progress or are you uh, against progress? And I think I think that's the area where there's there could be uh, a lot of excitement. As far as solar and wind, it's just it's not that there's never a use for them, but it's usually a place where specifically for solar, like you don't have access to a grid. But they're they're really marginal and. And but if they were prominent, we've already seen there are lots of nuclear of solar and wind installations opposed by uh, the Green Gauntlet. If you go to projectnoproject.com, there are tons of those things that have all sorts of of approval issues. Now some of them are demand I should say some of them are demanding eminent domain permissions, which I don't approve of. So you can throw that in there. But there there's no form of large scale development that either is building something big or is dealing with some f- fundamental new way of changing nature that does not. That uh, does not meet with opposition by, by the green movement, and that's because its fundamental opposition is to changing nature. So, 
one thing that comes up time and time again, we just talked about it in kind of passing, you sort of implicitly indicated by using the word natural in the way that you did. And we've had the similar conversation about industry and progress. And I know that personally, we've had this discussion in the past with the word environment and what it, it connotates now. So, so much of this seems to be a semantic issue about what people feel from words. So let's talk about finally the brass tacks. It's 2012. You have a think tank. You have clearly a expressed goal and philosophy. So how does this happen? What is ultimately the process by which you're able to have people reconsider whether or not water is or, you know, is, you know, the same as oil in terms of a natural resource or what the environment really means or what industry means for our world going forward? How exactly does it manifest when you go about changing hearts and minds. Yeah, it's something I've, I've, I've thought about um, a while. And one aspect of it is definitely that I see it as a decentralized movement. So I see a lot of what we're trying to do as model and show success and teach people and then have all kinds of people go out and do things that are similar or different to varying degrees. And I don't want to, you know, and I, I, as part of that, people are certainly going to advocate industrial progress in ways I don't think are quite right. That's fine. I mean, I, I get that. But what I want is that these core approaches and methods to be spread. So that said, how does that happen? Well, um, the moment, the real it's kind of three stages in the next five years, although these things, these things are subject to change insofar as we believe in free markets, we know that we get new information all the time, and we always want to act in the most effective way possible given our information. But I think of it as year one, which is I'm taking as the beginning of this year, is really I call invade the debate. And I don't mean that in a negative way, but I just mean we've got lots – I think I've got 12 new bloggers right now that we're, we're teaching – uh, our methodologies. Um, we've got me, we've got Dr. Eric Dennis kind of leading the whole thing intellectually. I'm writing a book, uh, The Story of Energy, which I'm hoping will give like the most most concrete, inspiring way of approaching these issues, the most concrete treatment of an issue so far with energy, which is really the, the fundamental industrial issue. I've talked about that also uh, at other times. But in any case, um, as in as many forms as possible, be giving pro-industrial progress materials, um, most importantly, I think, on fracking and keystone, since those are the two big issues, but also just more inspirational, historical storytelling things in general. I think by invading the debate and by bringing in many, many talented people, and I'm really excited about that aspect, uh, we'll see, I think we'll see, we've already seen some, some exciting results. I think we'll see some really exciting results and that'll really help us refine and help others refine. How do you craft the message in the right way? What is the most effective way of engaging in aspirational advocacy? How do you tell stories effectively? How do you connect to individuals uh, effectively? So I think right now we do it as well as anyone. Um, I think I think we do it well. But you know, by the end of the year, I think with all of these things, everything is both. An end in itself is an act of activism, but it's also a test. So every time we do something, we can learn what worked, what didn't, what can we learn. After that, I think the real focus I, I call you know, creating a movement is that once, once we've really gotten in there, once Center for Industrial Progress is starting to be known, and I have to say I'm really actually flattered by the extent to which I've heard some, peop some top people in energy talk about it already, but once 
once we're really known, I think the key thing is to create a set of of like foundational materials that people can reference whenever anything comes up. So uh, I won't go too much into it. I'll, I'll write about this in the newsletter, but we've got a project called the Industrial Encyclopedia, which is basically if you have a question about anything uh, that's, you know, any crucial environmental industrial issue, you go here and you get a treatment of it that I think is is will be clearer and more compelling and more useful to you than anything than anything that I've I've seen. So it's basically what I wish I had had when I uh, got started. Um, so that's that's another big project. And, and then the second big project, as far as creating a movement, is really putting forward a positive um, energy plan. We're going to start with energy because that's the field we know best, and then um, hopefully others in other industries will will uh, model themselves after. But as part of aspirational advocacy. You can't just have this is the ideal, this is what society should look like without being able to tell people, well, what should the government actually do? What should policy actually look like? Because if we need to be solution-oriented. If we don't really have clear solutions, then people might get inspired, but then there's no now what. And we want to have an end-to-end thing where they get inspired, they go to our website, they see our materials, they really start to buy into the values, they connect it to our life, but then they have real concrete policies to advocate for, something to tell their congressman when they talk to him, when they write to him. Uh, and then, you know, after that is, assuming all goes well, is really lead a uh, industrial progress movement. But but that's again from a decentralized perspective. It's. I can't tell you how important I think it is for those of us in the intellectual world to take seriously what we know about the workings of competition in a capitalist system and knowledge. There's so much to learn from experimentation. There's so much to learn from competition. There's so much to learn from specialists uh, in other fields. So I visited many, many think tanks, asked whoever I could to tell me whatever their experiences have told them. And I think the more we venture into this realm, the more other people have have creative ideas and and um, for sure, the lion's share of the work, if this is successful, will not be done by the Center for Industrial Progress. But I think we'll—I think we will have inspired it. And you know, if if we get to that day, you know, I can't think of anything that would make me happier. Well, here's to your own industrial progress in 2012, Alex. Thank you for the flattering invite to sit in your comfy chair and entertaining my inquisition. Uh, well, Jordan, uh, thank you for the flattering acceptance. It's, uh, I'm listening to your show a long time. It's always been a dream of mine to be a guest, so it was a pleasure. Well, maybe next time we can do it when you win the Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu World Championships. Alex Epstein, leader, <laughs> founder, and the creator of the Center for Industrial Progress under his direction. Look for big things in 2012. Don't worry. Next time you come for energy discussion, I'll be but a cipher. And Alex will be back holding court with the world's boldest energy boffins. But in the meantime, go to www.centerforindustrialprogress.com and make sure you sign up for the CIP Insider Newsletter. I'm Jordan Breen, and this has been Power Hour. Power Hour is a TJ DeSantis production. Its content is intended for private use only.